Good morning. Well, if you're new with us, we are in the middle of a series called The Crown Jewel. And as John said, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 today. And so I'm going to give you a quick recap in just a second. Before I do, though, I, I know it's not Mother's Day, but i got to talk about mom for just a second. And I don't do that a lot. But, um, so I don't get to see my parents you know, a whole, whole lot. They live in a different state, not too far away. But I got to see my mom this week, and um, she listens to the podcast of the message uh, every week. Hi, Mom. Um, so she listens every week, and typically she does the mom, you know, a hey, good job, that was good, and I thought that was really neat. And, um, but this week was a little bit different. Every now and then she'll kind of tell me what she really thinks. And um, she said, man, you were really hard on your people last week. <laughs> and so I'll tell her, well, they came back this week. <laughs> um, so if you were here last week, it was a little bit more of a difficult uh, topic and difficult message, and I got bad news, it's going to be more of the same, uh, at least for the first half, and then there's good news kind of at the end. So this is uh, a man named Paul who is following Jesus Christ, who didn't follow Jesus for a long time, a long period of his life, and then all of a sudden saw Jesus Uh, fulfill all the things he said he would do and be resurrected and actually be the son of God. And so he he allowed uh, Jesus, or he just trusted Christ, and he allowed God to send him out uh, on this mission to tell the people of his region, really the known world, about who Jesus was. And so he spent three years in this area in Asia Minor, um, specifically in the city of Ephesus. And he would travel from place to place, sometimes for short periods of time, some, sometimes for a couple of years, to teach the people in the region about who Jesus was and what he'd done and establish a church and establish leaders who could continue to lead and disciple the people. And so Paul had spent time with this group of people. And the reason we call it the crown jewel uh, is because Because it's this piece of literature, it's this document, the Word of God to us in about six chapters that we have laid out that just really has the essence of the gospel and who God is and who we are in Him. And um, so the, the reason we call it the crown jewel is that, but the reason that Paul wrote that to this specific group of people and what's special about the city of Ephesus is around Asia Minor, they were kind of known as the treasure. They were the crown jewel of the region as well. And they were a city that was bustling and growing and a lot of commerce and trade, but with it came a lot of idolatry. And, and it was a city that was known for idolatry because of the structure called the Temple of Artemis. And Artemis was this giant temple outside the city that was so large and so grand that it was considered one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, and it was four times larger than the Parthenon. So this was a massive structure, not just in size, but also in influence. That people would come and they would go and they would bow down before this goddess Artemis, and they would bring artifacts before her that tradesmen and and skilled workers would craft out of metal and rock and wood, and they would shape them in these forms that people could buy and go into the temple and lay at her feet. And so this city and this region was was wrought with idolatry. Everywhere you looked, everywhere you turned, and it was even in the book of Acts we saw a couple of weeks ago where one of the men said, all of Asia Minor worships and bows down to this goddess Artemis. And so here's this group of people, this small group of people, the church of God who were trying to live out their faith and what they knew and understood about Jesus Christ in this city filled with idolatry. And really, as we've said, it's not much different than what we've experienced in the past. And so what Paul does is he writes this letter to the people to encourage them, to remind them who God is and how to live for him. And that's one of the things that I love about Paul's writings is he would divide out what he wrote to us in a couple of sections. And this is split almost down the middle. So the first three chapters that we have divided out is Paul teaching us theology and doctrine. Teaching us who God is because they lived in a society that didn't really understand or know God, especially through Jesus Christ. So Paul was writing for them to understand that, to know their new relationship that they have with God. 
And then the last half of his letter, uh, in, in chapters 4 through 6, he gets down to the basic understanding of applying this belief and knowledge to our everyday lives. So he's going to tell us in those last couple of chapters how we're to live out this new relationship with God and how we're to walk, which means live, out this relationship with God. And so he began in chapter 1 that we covered for two weeks. He began in chapter 1 telling the people, this is what God has done for you, that he sent Christ to redeem you, that you were in slavery, you were in bondage, and you were kidnapped because of your sin. And you could not buy your way out, but Jesus had enough in himself, enough power, enough riches to pay for your bondage to free you from that sin and that, that slavery that you found yourself in. And with it, not only did he have the power to free us, but he gives us, those who trust in him, the power to live life. And we saw him say basically that the power that raised Jesus from the dead is now living in and existing in the believer because of who Christ is and because of who we are in him. And as a sign of that, God gave us his Holy Spirit, which is God himself, as a deposit, as a guarantee that we would know that we are his and that he was coming back for us. And with that, he gave us this inheritance that we receive everything that God has and everything that he had worked for and we didn't have to do anything to earn it. And you know to receive an inheritance, someone has to die. Your parents have worked or your grandparents have worked and, and when their life is over and when their life is ended, their inheritance gets passed along to their family. And in the same situation spiritually for us that are in Christ, when Jesus died and those who are a part of his family have received this inheritance. And so Paul is encouraging this group of people You have been rescued, you've been saved, you're being transformed. You have the power of God to live faithfully in this world. And as a sign, I've given you a deposit, I'm giving you my inheritance. And so they had this hope that was secure. But they lived in a society where men and women worshipped other gods that did not provide the same security. See, the people at the temple would come back weekly, daily, monthly to lay down alms and and things at the the feet of Artemis, hoping she would forgive them or hoping they could find favor in her. So all these people that lived in Asia Minor that the people of God existed with would go through their days not secure about their hope that they had in finding favor with the God they worshipped. And so you know it naturally had to rub off on some of the believers that maybe we don't have the same kind of hope that we thought we did. We don't have the same kind of security we thought we did. And honestly, a lot of us today don't live with the security that Paul talks about. We come back to God and say, God, would you forgive me? Would you help? Would you overlook this situation? I know I messed up here, but God, I'm gonna come back to church or I'm gonna give money so that you might forgive me of the things that I've done. I'm gonna come every week. I'm gonna go on a mission trip. And we try to barter with God and we try to give to God hoping he would find favor in us. And Paul says, you don't have to do that. You don't have to buy God's love. You don't have to buy his favor. He has done that for you in Christ and you are secure. You're in this new relationship, this new family through which he said you're adopted into his and you cannot lose that, that it is secure in him. But most of us don't live with that security. We feel like we're failures. We feel like we're broken down, that we're worthless, that our life is just rubble, that everything we try just falls apart and we simply can't be good enough. Now, sometimes we don't even feel like a work in progress. We'd take that label, right? Okay, they're just a work in progress. They're not perfect. They're not the best, but they're not terrible. We're, we're seeing a little bit of success and a little bit of progress, even if it's minutia, even if it's tiny, even if it's small. We don't even feel like we're a work in progress sometimes. We feel like it's over. It's, it's gone. We have nothing left, no hope, no chance. And that's the way we live our lives. And I would say, and here's the bad news, in one sense, you're exactly right. Our lives hopeless, worthless. 
before we found Christ, before God sent him, our lives were hopeless. In Ephesians chapter 2, starting the first couple of verses, it's exactly what Paul is going to tell us about our state in that condition, starting in verse 1. He says this, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He's like, that's a great way to start, right? Thanks, Paul, appreciate it. Like, you're dead, there's nothing, you got no chance in your trespasses, which means you acted willfully against the will and the rule of God, like we do as teenagers toward our parents. We transgress against their curfew because it's stupid, it's idiotic, right? Like every 15-year-old should be able to stay out till 2 in the morning, right? I mean, our parents don't have a clue. And so we transgressed against our Father's will. And we were dead in that. We were living a life that was dead. And so he continues in verse 2. In which you once walked, which simply means lived out your life, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in you and the sons of disobedience. And he goes on to tell us this was all of us, among who all of us who have ever lived walked in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just like the rest of mankind. But the problem is we don't realize we're dead. We, we look at our physical bodies and we say, I, I'm, I'm here. Like it's not in the shape I want it to be, but I'm here clearly. I'm not dead. I'm alive. We look at our tangible assets. We look at the physical things we have acquired and we say, I can't be dead because I bought these. I worked hard for these. I cannot be dead. I, I look at the modicum of success, even if it's small, and I see that and I say, there's no way you can tell me I'm dead. I'm fully alive. I am not dead. And in one sense, you're exactly right. You are fully alive. You're just fully alive in disobedience and willful transgression against God. And you're fully, you and I were born into that, fully alive in that. And he says, you are children of wrath, which means we can't do anything to please God, that, that the holiness, the perfectness of God comes against us, like we sometimes feel the holiness, wrath of our Father against us. And we were born into that, all of mankind. None of us are special, not a one. But we don't think we're dead. So Paul tells us in chapter one, he says, you, you were in this one family, you're in this children of wrath group with the rest of human history. And you could not do anything to rescue or to save yourself. And everything you did was displeasing toward God. Even if you think you're fully alive. And Paul says you have been transformed and you have been moved into a new family with a new name and a new home. And you have been adopted into the family of God. But the problem is, before we enter into that new family, we all exist in the original family in which we were born. Instead of being born into the family of God, we were born into the family of Adam, the first human being who ever walked the earth, who willfully transgressed against the will of God, who pushed away God and said, I don't want your rule, don't want your law, don't want anything you have for me. I'm going to live life for myself. I think I know best. And so we were born into that state, into that family. There's two problems with that. The first one is, is that it's physical in makeup. And any of us over 40... We, we, we get that, right? We know. Things do not look the way they used to look. Things do not work the way they used to work. There's a whole lot of things that are at lower levels than they were before, right? Ah, talking about eyelids and all that kind of stuff. Like, we get this. We understand that we are born into this body that will lead to decay at some point. No one has beaten Father Time. All of us at some point. Our bodies physically will die. And the other part of being born into this family, this children of wrath family, that's even more significant for us is that it's sinful in nature. 
which means we just said, God, I don't want it. I'm going to live opposite from you, which is simply what sin says, what, what sin is. We're saying, God, I don't want what you want. It's not pleasing to me. It doesn't make me happy. It's not what I planned for my life, and I'm just going to do my own way. At the core, that's what sin is. And so we are born into this sinful state, into this sinful nature that ultimately leads to death because it causes separation from God. And so you and I are hopeless. We're helpless without someone coming in to rescue us. And you say, no, 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 that's not me. I'm not in that place. I'm not dead. I'm fully alive. I have all these things. I have this house. I have a car. I have a job. I have a decent relationship with my family. I'm not dead. I am alive. And you can't convince me any different. Let's just go back to one statement that Paul made in verse 3. He said that all of us, all of mankind, were doing this because of our disobedience. It placed us as enemies of God, and this is what we're doing. In verse 3, this is what he says, that we were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. In verse 3, this is what he says, that we were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And you say, no, 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 I'm not in that state, that's not me. What is the phrase that is on repeat at nauseum in our society. You do you. Which inherently means you do you so I can do me. Which translates to me carrying out the desires of my body and my mind and nobody can tell me what to do and how to live. How should I tell somebody else what to do with their body? As I've said before, you try to do whatever you want to do with your body you get naked and run down the belt line and I'll tell you in about two seconds flat, somebody's going to tell you what to do with your body. Either the policeman's going to take you to jail or somebody else is going to yell out the window, start going to the gym. <laughs> right? It is on repeat. It is something that even we as believers, even if we don't sometimes act on it, that we have to fight against in our mind. Then nobody can tell me what to do. God can't tell me to do this. I'm going to push this away. I'm going to do my own thing. He can't help me. He can't change me. I, and I'm just going to carry out what I have planned for myself without consulting the will of God. How many times have we done that? And then after the fact, we pray and ask God to fix our mess that we got ourselves into. Because we want to carry out our own desires. All of us. None of us are different or special. Every single one, no matter if you've pushed God away all of your life or you've trusted in him for all of eternity. All of us desire to carry out our own will because we don't like people to tell us what to do. Ask our wives, right? Especially for the men. We just don't like anybody telling us what to do. And so Paul says, you were dead. You were dead in your transgression. You were dead in your sin. And all of mankind was this way. And we walked this way. This is how we walked, thinking we were alive, but blinded to the fact that we were actually dead. And so then the natural question is, okay, if I'm in this state, if I'm in this condition, maybe I don't believe you, maybe I don't understand what you're saying, but if we're all in this state, then how do I get myself out? If I'm dead, because dead men can't do anything for themselves, how do I get myself out of this? And the only way you can get yourself out of this original family is to be born again or reborn into a new family. Now, when I say those words, born again or reborn, and you have never trusted in Jesus or you've never been to church or you've been and you say, I, I hate that phrase because I've had that phrase beaten down on me and pushed down on me and I have all these friends that say, okay, oh, you just need to be born again. You just need to believe. You just need to have trust. You just need to be born again, reborn. And you're like, what in the world are you talking about? I don't want to be born again. I'm happy with the life I've got. 
And the first response you have is you may cringe because believers have beaten you over the head with the Bible and with their behavior, implying you're not good enough because I'm better than you. And you cringe and say, I don't want to hear that phrase ever again because people have just beaten it down my throat, which means we as believers have done a terrible job loving you because what we have done, not meaning to, but I, I think sometimes meaning to, is we've treated you like a project. Well, because my pastor said, you know, I got to get people saved. I got this quota because I entered this, you know, evangelistic group and we got to talk to so many people and save so many people. And here's the clue, you can't save anybody. Nobody can save you except for Jesus. And so if you're here, you're watching, you're listening, whatever, and you're like, I I hate that phrase and this is part of why I hate Christianity. Can I just remind you this for all of us, not just for you, for all of us. You are not a project to be changed. You're a person to be loved. And when you understand God's love, he will then begin to change you, and nobody else can do that for you. Again, just ask our spouses. They try every day, and they fail twice on Sunday. You're not a project, and shame on us for treating you that way. You're simply a person who needs to be shown love, because I think if you or I are shown love enough, then our hearts will melt to allow you into our lives and then we'll start to believe what you actually believe or at least you believe that you think you believe what you believe. That we'll listen to you because we trust you because you love me, tangibly love me. You've helped me, you sacrificed for me. And so it's time to quit treating people like a project. It's time to quit just throwing this subculture language that, that we've got as Christians that nobody understands and honestly... We probably don't understand half of it anyway because all we do is we just use the terms and we don't understand the meaning. Maybe for you the second response that you have is when I say the phrase born again or reborn, you just simply have no clue. You have no idea it's Greek to you because of the subculture and that language that we live in. We toss around words as as Christians and believers that really have no meaning or connection to to reality, but even even though they really do and we can help bridge those gaps for you, that you've never had anybody explain it to you in a way that you can understand. And that doesn't mean that you're less than, you're just like everybody else. If you're having a hard time wrapping your mind around the idea of being born again, you are not alone. There was a man that Jesus talked to who was actually a religious leader. His man, his man name was uh, Nicodemus. And he came to Jesus one night and said, I, I don't understand this being born again you're talking about. It makes no sense to me. And so Jesus just sat down with him and had a conversation. In John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And so you have to transfer from this family to be into this new family. And, and Nicodemus like, I don't understand how that can happen. He literally asked, how can a man, in the next verse, he says, how can a man be born again when he's old? How can a 40-year-old man go back into his mother's womb and literally be rebirthed again as a baby? Go back to the last one, I'm sorry. How can a man be born again? Can he enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born? So he just literally cannot wrap his mind around this idea. And so Jesus continues, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And we understand water. At one point, your mom's water broke and then you were born naturally and physically into the world of the flesh. But Jesus says you have to be born of the flesh and then you also have to be born into a new family, into a spiritual family the Spirit of God. 
And so he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And he tells him, don't marvel at this. Don't marvel that I told you you have to be born again. Don't be confused by this. It's really not that hard or that difficult to understand. And so let me put it in a way that I think we can understand today. That maybe you have seen or been part of an adoption story, or you've seen children be brought into a home and into a family. This very same thing happens every time. And Nicodemus could not get past the physical element. How can a 40-year-old man become a one-day-old baby again? This is how it happens. When a child is brought into a home, he receives or she receives a new, a new name, a new family, and a new home. Not just, hey, we're going to call you Bubba now, that's your nickname. But literally and legally, this child and the family goes through the process of mountains of paperwork and documentation, social security name, birth certificate, everything you can imagine so that that child is brought into this family has literally been born again legally. The old life is null and void. It does not exist anymore. The old name is gone. And Paul and Jesus simply say, you just have to be adopted into the family of God. You don't have to physically be reborn. You just come into this family, the family of God, because of what Jesus has done for you. And when you trust and you believe in him, it's as if you're born a second time. But the great news is the old life has no hold. It is finished and it is gone. And so Jesus is saying and Paul is saying this is exactly what we need. We need this to happen in our lives. And the only way it can happen is if we're accepted into a new family. But the problem is a child who needs to be adopted can't go find a family on his own. A child who needs to be adopted can't pay all the fees for him to be accepted into the family. The price is too great. And according to Paul, you and I were just like that child. We were born into a family that was leading to destruction and death. And we had no hope. And then Paul utters the two greatest words maybe ever written. But God. That even when you and I were in that state, even when we were dead, even when we were a child of wrath, even when we were rebelling against God, Paul says this in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when, even when we were trespassing, even when we were dead in those trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And Paul says, even when you were in that family and could not get yourself out of it, even when you were blinded to your deadness because dead men can't do anything, even when you could not see it, even when you'd rebelled against God to the point that he could just say, fine, get whatever you want, take whatever you want. Even then, even when we were enemies of God, he sent Christ because of his love and because of his grace to receive us and to bring us when we didn't earn it or do anything that should warrant us getting a new name and a new family and a new home. Even then. But you know our problem? Our problem is we believe and buy into the phrase that says well God helps those who help themselves which is completely inaccurate because that says look what I've done I've gotten all the way up the hill and I just needed God to give me a push 
Look at all this that I have done and acquired for my, look how good I've been. Look at this family I've, I've created for myself and this business and this job and I quit doing this and I started doing the right things and, and I look better than everybody else and said, God, look, I'm, I'm trying to help myself. I'm trying to get there. I'm trying to clean myself up. If you just give me a little push, then it'll get me over the top. And that communicates we had something to do with it. But what we had to do with our lives was deadness, that what we had to do was that we were children of wrath, we were controlled by the evil one, by, by Satan, by the prince of the power of the air. We were under his control, and we could not see it. Paul says, even then, God sent his son Christ. And so the better phrase is, God helps those who cannot help themselves. Those who were dead, those who were hopeless, those who were helpless. A child needing adopted could not do anything to get themselves a new family. The mom, the dad, the father had to sacrifice to allow this child to be brought in. And so God helps those who cannot help themselves, those who cannot get anywhere to gain his favor or his love, which is all of us, because we were all born into the family of Adam, into the family of flesh and the sinful nature. There's an even better phrase than that, though. God doesn't help those who help themselves. God helps those who cannot help themselves. But an even better phrase is this. God helps his enemies. Because that's exactly what you and I are. Before Christ, we were enemies of God. Rebelling, pushing, transgressing against him and pushing him away and saying, God, I don't want your rules. I don't want your law. I don't want anything you've got for me. And God says, even then, even when you stood on the opposite side of me, and you didn't earn anything, and you didn't warrant anything, you had nothing in you inherently good that would have any value that would say, I'll give my life in exchange for you. Even then, in the midst of our deadness, God said, you're my enemy, but I still love you. I still want to give you a new family, a new home, new life. I want to rescue you, give you hope and freedom. And even more than that, he continues in verse 6 and 7. And this is what he did. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming days, in the coming ages, he might show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So Paul says, you, you not only have this freedom, even when you were enemies of God that you've been brought into this family, you have been seated. You've been moved from the kitty table. Like you're not pitied anymore. You have been raised up and seated with Christ in the heavenly places so that one day when your eyes are fully opened, you will see all of the grace and all the immeasurable riches that God has given you. And if you're a parent, you get it. Like your five-year-old can't see what they've got right now. It's only until they grow up and are older and their eyes can see everything that you've ever provided for them. And in this day, in this time, in this age, we can't see all that God has done for us. But he has seated us with Christ so that one day we'll see everything that he's done. And we will not be able to fathom or understand the grace that he has poured out on his enemies who are us. And the great news about that is none of us did anything to earn it. Whether you're still running from God or you've been walking with God for 40 years, we're all on the same playing field. Unfortunately, some of us just act, act, like to act like we got ourselves there. And Paul says this in verse 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved. You didn't do anything to earn it. God just gave it to you. And the way you receive it, the way you accept it is through faith, through trusting and believing in him. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. And sometimes those who've been walking with God for a long time act like we're the gift to the world 
and we're the gift of church and we're the gift to our community. Look what we've done. Look how we've arrived. When it really in reality is we're the ones who've received the gift. He says, this is not a result of your own works. It's grace so that you can't boast. And maybe the reason you quit coming to church is because you were tired of boastful Christians. You were tired of hypocrites. You were tired of holier than thou. You are tired of people who spoke a sub-language that you couldn't understand but then acted like you were worth nothing. And Paul says, all of us were worth nothing. Hopeless, helpless. But God in his favor and his grace said, I see you. I see you in your deadness. I see you lying flat. I see you without hope. I see you struggling. I see you addicted. I see you not overcoming. I see you can't control your tongue. I see you can't control your fists. I see you can't control your pride. I see you can't control your greed. I see you. I see you out there. All you have done is earn the enemy status. But God says, even then, even when you were my enemy and didn't want it, I came to chase after you. I came to come after you so that you could have this gift of relationship and freedom you could have this new family, and that old family is null and void. It is gone. It does not exist anymore. And so one more question I think we should be asking is, then what does it cost? If God's done this for me, what does it cost me to pay him back? What does it cost to get this gift? It costs you nothing. And at the same time, it costs you everything. It costs you nothing because you couldn't do anything. A child cannot buy their way into a new family. They simply don't have the ability. So it's just a gift that this child receives that you've brought into your family and brought into the world. And God says, here, this gift costs you nothing because my son paid the price so that you could be transferred to a new family. But in the other sense, it costs you everything. That old life that is gone, it means that you have to let go of and be okay with that old life being gone. Because it's null and void. Legally, it's not there anymore. But sometimes we like to run back to it like it is. Like it has a hold on us. Like it's still our identity. Like it's still who we are in the depths of us and our genes and our DNA. That's why God doesn't make you better. God makes you new. Because if he made you better, you would still have those old genes. He just changed them. He made you completely new so that those old ones are gone. The nature and the sinful flesh is gone. You have newness, new life, and no one can take that away from you. And so the problem is when we as believers act like and think like we're a failure and think like our life is just nothing but mistakes and rubble and that we're not even a work in progress, it discounts God's ability to change us. Because this is what Paul says about who we are. Once we've believed and trusted, which is what it takes, it takes faith to receive this gift. This is what he says in verse 10. Verse 10, this is how God sees us, that we are his workmanship. And some of us go, yep, he is. I am a hot mess, right? The problem with that statement is it, it allows you to stay there. See, workmanship means progress. Even if some, sometimes it's one step forward and two steps back. Workmanship says there's actively change and progress and work and transformation. 
that you and I are his workmanship. We are a work in progress, that our lives were rubble at one time, but now he's building something new and changing us. He's created us in Christ Jesus, watch this, for good works. And the problem is, when we say we're a hot mess and our life is messed up and our life is over and it's just rubble and we can't do anything to please God, then we're discounting his working on our lives as a master sculptor and creator, that he is shaping us and changing us into his image. And sometimes when, a, when an artist works on sculpture, or a sculptor works on a piece of, of art, they take out and they cut out some of those pieces that don't need to be there. And sometimes when God cuts those things out of our lives, it hurts. It's hard, it's difficult, it's painful. Sometimes he adds two so that he can make a masterpiece. So he can create and design exactly what he has planned for us. But we rebel against that. God, I don't want that. That's too hard. That's too difficult. I didn't sign up for this. And that's the part that costs you everything. Because you have to realize and understand that you're letting go of all the old. And there will still be struggle and there will still be times where you want to gravitate to it. But it has no hold because you are new and God is making you into his image. And the problem with just saying my life is a mess is not seeing God working on us because he has planned for us as he's shaping us for good works he has already planned for us to do. And if we don't see ourselves as a workmanship, then we'll never get to the task of accomplishing the works he has planned for us. And sometimes you say, well, you know, I got, I'm a lot of mess. God's got to do a lot of cutting. That's what I want you to realize. Sometimes God doesn't cut the things you think he's going to cut. God's going to actually leave in and use those things of your past as a part of your story and his masterpiece in your life so that it can communicate to other people he can do the very same thing in you. And I think sometimes you'll be surprised what he cuts out and what he leaves in. You just have to be open to what he is wanting to do in your life and how he's wanting to shape you because he has already planned what he wants for you to do in this life. And following him costs everything because you're letting go and you're allowing him to have control. But he sees you as his masterpiece, as his work of art. And so believer, you have been transferred from death to life not just made better, made whole, made new. And he loves you enough not just to quit working on you, but to continually working and crafting and shaping you to do the very things from the beginning of time he has desired for you, Susan, John, Joe, Martha. Those things he has placed in you to do in this life. So don't discount what God can do in your life. Let's pray. Father, a lot of times we don't understand because we just can't see. Just like our children, they, they have limited vision and limited understanding and knowledge of the world around them. And they, they have hampered views of, of feelings and philosophy and all the things of life. And so for us, God, help us to understand and realize that our view of life sometimes is hampered as well because of our finite minds that we simply cannot see and and know and understand the things that you know, but we learn over time to trust you, that you're a God who is good, that we can place our hands in and we can place our security in. And God, help us to understand how you have made it possible for us to enter into this new family. You just not brought us into a, your family so that you could show pity on us, but you brought us into your family so that you could craft us and shape us to be a masterpiece that doesn't happen in a day 
but happens over the course of a lifetime and doesn't happen because of anything that we have inherently in us, but simply because of your goodness and your grace. And Father, for those this morning, maybe for the very first time, understood what it means to be born again. Maybe they're not ready to trust you fully, but maybe they're ready to ask some questions like Nicodemus was, to say, I don't know, I don't understand. Can you help me wrap my mind around what this is? I pray that, God, you'd open their heart and give them the courage to to ask someone, to find someone, to come down to the front and say, "I, I need my questions answered. God, help us to continue to love one another and love others who are simply trying to figure life out and understand what it means to live and to walk in you. God, thank you for your grace and allowing us the time to know you and to be saved and rescued by you. We thank you in the name of Christ. Amen.